if Maria supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> America's <Yeah. laughs> This whole time, every Tuesday, I had been delivering pastries and going in around this house that was the former home of the Bush family. You know, big time CIA, big time skull and bones. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Great America Show. A couple days late uh, as we've been traveling again, but we're coming at you with an episode with Mark Steves here, friend of the show, Mark Steves. And, uh, yeah, we're happy to have him on the show. We, of course, we just got back from one of our contact at the cabin events down in Colorado. No, no. Oh, sorry. Uh, Utah. (laughs) (laughs) Felt like Colorado. (laughs) Utah. I mean, I love Utah. Utah. I I like it, dude. I like Utah. It's pretty great. Pretty great. Uh, yeah, pretty good thing going on down in Utah, I gotta say. Yeah, we had a fantastic trip. It was great, great event, fantastic people. I mean, I really, yeah, I really had a good time talking to everybody. It was fun. It was fun down there. I'm getting, you know, I love it down there in Duck Creek. I really do. Cruising around on the side by sides and checking out the national parks. I got a national park pass now for a year, or so. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. It was only like an extra eight bucks. When the, when I went to the other park on to Zion, he was like, you know, for like eight more bucks, you can get a pass if you. I was like, and and it's good until May of next year, so it's good for at the very least, it's good for those two parks again next year. Great, no, well, yeah, it was fun. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to like speak about too many people there because I'll forget a bunch of people. But of course, you know, that was great having. Brandon Powell there and the Brothers of the Serpent and Dave Matheson and and uh, Ben from Uncharted X, you know, the uh, the personalities, but also to meet people that that have been in our chats for a while, like Shellback and and uh, T Bone. But then uh, now there's like too many names. Now there's real oh, names yeah. and nicknames, and I'm like, you should have introduced yourself as your chat name. There you go. And there's you know Carbuncle, you know, was there too, and others, uh, you know, and then of course seeing all the people that we saw at previous uh, events, uh, it was just fantastic. I had really good breathing with Brandon. I had a really good experience with the guys doing the music, like the Brothers of the Serpent, and and Brandon doing the music was fantastic. Like Kyle was throwing this the shaker and this, the tambourine thing on his foot. Like I felt like it was shooting into the corner of the room, dude. It was, it was, uh, it was super, I had a pretty psychedelic experience with the breathing the last day. Huh? There you yeah. go. It was really and you were good. doing the cold every day. I did the cold every day. Yeah. We had the river, did a river walk there. And then we all jumped in while well, most of us jumped in the river. That last day it was great. It was a good time. Yeah. Good time down in Utah. Of course, uh, next year is the 421 down in Utah. Uh, it's already starting to fly off the shelf, so head over to contact at the cabin.com. Check it out. Get a deposit down for next year's uh, 
Um, fun, I guess. Festivities. Next year's festivities. So I do want to mention, I want to talk about the travel a little bit too. I think it's worth it just for people to know what, like what's going on. Cause I know a lot of people feel trapped in, in the country right now. Do you want me to talk about my trip going down? You go first. Or? I'm pooped. I'll go first. Okay. So, so driving across the border into the States, the first time don't have to show them anything. They don't, they, you know, he asks, but we don't have to show them anything, but he also asks if we had meat, and I had a bunch of elk in the in the trunk, and and I I saw cars pulling over. Cars it seems were being like it was over. a month ago. I know it's <laughs> like it was ages ago. So cars were being pulled over, and I'm like, I'm not gonna lie about this meat. So I'm like, yeah, well, I got some elk in the back, and he starts elk, and he's like asking questions about hunting, and I'm like, well, yeah, well, we hunted it. I was there. I mean, I helped him, but I didn't hunt it. It's my friends. He's a he's an Indian, <laughs> and. And I didn't have any, like they expected some paperwork for it. And I'm like, well, I, you know, so he didn't, so it sounded like he was fine with it. I said, look, yeah, we hunted. It's just a, just enough for the barbecue. We're going down to barbecue. And so then he says, we'll just pull over to the left and come into the officer. So we had to wait. So, here, you know, I got about a 10 hour drive that day and I got to wait 45 minutes. I didn't, I didn't know what we were waiting for. I was like, oh my God, what, what is this all about? And of course, thinking just trying to stay you know calm and stuff and and then then she just says you know she calls me up to the desk and she's like yeah you need paper paperwork for the elk then proving that it wasn't poached and it was hunted properly and all that so so we're gonna escort you back to the canadian side and you'll have to get rid of the elk so so then we wait in line at the canadian side to go in and we explain to the guy what happens he's like well this is a normal thing it's called a turnaround thing so you still have to fill out your arrive can app and i'm like well we're not going we're not going into canada we're just gonna quickly get rid of the elk and drop it off with a friend right there and go right back around to the states no you got to fill out your app so then it brings up all these other issues right because i'm like no i'm not you know that I don't have a test. I'm filling out the app and it's useless because it's a really simple, strict app and it's not for just what I'm doing. Right. So we go back and then I think we had to go into the office. Yeah. So we had to go into the office because we had a slip of paper to say that we were doing a turnaround thing. Brady was great. He, he runs outside and he found a, a Hutterite out there. Uh, and he, and he gives the Hutterite the elk right there. The Hutterite's super excited. He's like, Oh, I'd love to have your elk. So we got rid of it right in the parking lot of Canadian customs. And, uh, and the lady in there was great. So she just said to me, like, she goes, well, you're, you're answering these questions wrong. And I said, what do you mean? And she says, well, they, you know, you're, you're, uh, you have a quarantine location or something. So I'm like, well, I'm not going there. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going back to the state. So she lets us go ahead. It was pretty, fairly simple, but it took, took about an hour and a half probably off the, off the journey. Go right back into the states. Talking about uh, what did we talk? What was what were we talking about again? Anyway, so it was super cool. The guards on the state side are, are great compared to the masked up Canadian guards. You can't even understand. Um, doesn't even ask a thing about anything COVID at all. Nothing. Just go on, have a good time, kind of thing. So we got right in. So then, of course, I've been getting these emails from the Canadian government, thinking that I'm in the Canada side. So I've been ignoring these emails. So then I'm thinking, okay, well, I, and at first I thought, well, I'm going to coming back through this time. I'm going to handle a little bit differently. Right? I'm not going to do the, 
the no app, no tests and all that and fight them. I'm going to go, I'm going to do the app, do the test, pay extra money for the test and see how it goes. Like see if it'll go smoother. And I had a sense it's going to go pretty smooth, but then I can't do the app because I'm already in the app. They think I'm quarantining. So we're coming back up to the border after the trip and I'm trying to do the app and, and it won't let me. And I'm thinking, well, do I create a new account? Do I delete it and reinstall it? And so it's like, no, you're on day eight of quarantine and I'm just doing no symptom, no symptoms, no symptoms, no symptoms. So I've, so we, we got to, we get to the border garden and to try and explain all this to him that we had to go back around and with the elk and it, and it, and it seemed like he was getting it, but he wasn't getting it at first. And then he's like, so you're going back to the States. I felt like I was in a Monty Python skit or something. I'm like, no, 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 no. We got turned around <laughs> and we had to do the app. And then we're right back in the States again. So now it's day, they think it, I'm in day eight, day eight quarantine. And I'm like, here, I've got my tests and I show my tests and all that. And he was pretty cool. He goes, is your email player coach? Cause your last name's Dunlop. And I go, yeah, you got it. He's like, I'm like, not many people pick up on that one. Cause it was from, it was named after Paul Newman, uh, player coach Reg Dunlop from Slapshot. You remember that? No. No. Yeah. Anyway, so that's a good sort of Canadian joke. So I explained it. So he kind of started to understand what was going on, and he just let he just let he's like, okay, go ahead, just ask us the basic, rush through the basic questions. You got any, you know, firearms, blah blah blah, and uh, just let us go through. So the app, you know, so I have this test now that's not uploaded to the app because I can't. The app doesn't do anything. I log in, it doesn't do anything. It's it's just you can't. You know, there's no flexibility at all with it. But I mean, you know, he didn't tell me I had to quarantine or anything like that. I'm still on the original supposedly like, you know, checking in with my symptoms every day from the other one. So it's just, it's just ridiculous. I didn't, I didn't have any trouble at all with my, uh, with my papers. Besides there not being enough employees to manage. the. Well, that was a whole like shit show of its own. I mean, the flight down was pretty uneventful, but the flight back. Took from like six in the morning. Well, no, would have been about seven in the morning. We left at got up got up at six thirty. Left at seven forty five, and then uh, I got home at like nine o'clock. Just because, and I should have been home by four thirty. I think originally I was supposed to land at four thirty, but I was delayed three hours in Vegas because no ground crews. So it's the ground crew problem in both countries. <laughs> yeah, and then it landed here, and we were delayed on the runway for an hour because of no ground crew. So, so you got so you had to wait like your flight. Did you have to take a different flight, or was it your same flight just delayed? Same flight, just delayed. Delayed three hours. Oh yeah, I mean, I had a direct flight, so I was lucky, really, compared to some of these people who had connections and like. People were freaking out all over the place. All really? Day. Yeah. really? I was sitting really? like right by the ticket desk at WestJet, just editing audiobooks, and uh, yeah, it was really something else. Really, you're working, working, waiting for your. Well, what there? else am I gonna do? I'm just like, well, fuck. You know, I can listen to an audiobook, but it's a weird spot to just try and listen to an audiobook, mm. and I'm tired. So I'm probably going to fall asleep, you know, and I don't want to sleep in the airport. I'd wait yeah, and till the, work the plane. Keeps you, like the working kept you up a little bit, kept you. Yeah, I can sleep focused. when I get on the plane. That's when I want to sleep. So uh, 
I was working, just sort of working and seeing this whole shit show. Of Is everybody people. masked up in the airport? No, nobody was masked up. Really? Nobody. Less than 1%. What? In the Las Vegas airport, yeah. No. Nobody. Oh, my God, dude. Like, it was a, Canada, when you Canada seen a mask, it was no just clue. like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Canada has no clue, dude. No clue. Utah, there's no COVID. Like, really, I mean, yeah, there's a few people walking around with masks. There's a few. There is, there's a few, but not a lot. I mean, that's your only visual reminder is that there's the minority of masks. Otherwise, you, you wouldn't even be able to tell anything's going on. Yeah, there's no mask there. There really wasn't. They made us all put on masks to get on the plane, but, uh, all the flights to Canada, you have to put on a mask. No, <laughs> no. Yeah, so like, and come keep on them on during the plane. Oh yeah, yeah. Because you're going to Canada. Yeah, they're way more lax on if you keep it up or not these days. But right, right. Yeah. So then I got off the airplane and proceeded to wait another hour for my luggage, and uh, it never showed up. That's so frustrating when you get to your spot after like three hours oh, of flying, yeah. you got to wait an hour on the tarmac. And then, like, yeah, and then wait an hour for my luggage inside. And they're like, and were people uh, freaking out again? Were the same people kind of freaking out? Or? Well, you know, to each other, you can kind of see it all around. I'm by myself, so I'm just sort of watching everybody. And uh, and then they brought cable in the announcement and said there was like five planes they needed to unload and nobody to unload them. <laughs> and they're like, How can <laughs> They're like, How can so it be <laughs> we can't even tell you uh, an estimate because we have no idea. And what? I was just like, holy fuck. Why are you operating? I don't understand how this is possible. So I went in to, to talk to the lady. I'm like, I got to get the fuck out of here, man. Like, this is crazy. And she's like, you got a real bad attitude, mister. And I'm like, pardon me? I'm like, are you oh, gonna, fucking oh kidding God, me? I fucking have been getting fucked over all day. And you just told me you don't know when you're going to get my bag. And I have a bad attitude. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's it. I'm not helping you. You need this paper. Otherwise, you can't leave customs without your bag. So, and I'm not helping you because you have a bad attitude. That's the end of that. You know, and she wants me to go kiss her ass to get this paper now. And I was just like, fuck that, bitch. And I walked out of there and I went to the customs guy and I was like, here's my fucking paper. I'm fucking leaving. I'm not being held. No, my other paper. Oh, you're, okay. My, oh, you're uh, not, like, my, not my special. I don't, because I guess there's a rule that you can't leave this fucking without your customs area yeah. without all the bags that you're responsible for. You can't come <laughs> back into the country. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I'm not being fucking held hostage here because of their fucking ineptness. And you said that like, to the guy? Oh, yeah. But he was like already like backpedaling because he's probably been hearing it all day. Because here's the thing. This entire fucking room is full of luggage that isn't ours. So you can tell they've just been like fucking so far behind all day that hundreds of people have left without their bags. Oh, my God. And they're just what like then so going to empty them off the carousel before the next fucking flight comes in and the luggage doesn't get emptied anyway. So as soon as the buddy's just like, yep, no, you can go, man. No problem. <laughs> and then, uh, what's, what so I went back issue? today oh, so, sorry. and I got my bag and yeah, okay. it was funny cause it was right there because that's the cool thing about having the Hunter S Thompson suitcase. It was just like, I was just walking over to the baggage desk and I was like, bang, there's my bag. The <laughs> <laughs> sea of bags. It stands out. <laughs> so I went back and got my bag today and I was like, so how long did it take? 
And she was like, oh, it was about three and a half hours. And I was like, holy shit. So those people didn't get their bags till after midnight. So anyone who had a connection, just their bag is fucking who knows where now. <laughs> oh, dude, I've lost bags going to Europe and it sucks. You know, oh, having yeah. to wait, having to try and I got my hockey sticks. Remember that? I got my hockey sticks like right before the final game. And oh, brutal. anyways, um, what's going on? Why do you think there was such an issue? No workers. I know, but why? What's well, because they pay shit and, and the mandates too. And you they think, have maybe? mandates. That's and what people I just think. don't want to work right now. Like, I well, mean, not I... only that, add that to they were shut down forever. And, you know, probably got rid of tons and tons of people when, no, when there was no flights for a year and a half. Oh, and now they can't ramp up quick and enough? And now you can't ramp up. Wow, what a story. Uh, I don't know what it is, but, you know, they're fucked. I think it's a canary in the coal mine for Western civilization. It's what, because what? I think the airlines are probably one of the, like most complex organisms that we have going for like, I mean, you got to think scheduling about it. It's pretty crazy that they, money, got, profit, they yeah. got these thousands of planes flying all over the fucking planet all day, 24 seven. And for the most part, they're linking up, they're linking up and they're connecting and you're getting your luggage and you it's crazy that that all works when you really think about it at the end of the day. Now with the internet and stuff too, it's like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, we'll get you here. We'll get you there. And your bags fucking show up. But, uh, so I think the, uh, the seeing that break is kind of a sign of, of things to come because not oh, just that that's construction what you mean. So it's not, is a, it's not an too. intentional test. It's you're saying it's like an unintentional canary in the coal mine with, with a complex, human organism during the great reset <laughs> yeah or, or or it's still just like it's the price we're paying for the pandemic the like Is it- two months to flatten the curve or whatever the fuck it was was actually two months to fucking just fucking throwing wrenches into the gears <laughs> Is it- and now Is shit's it- grinding up all over the place like I'm telling you construction costs are going to go up 50% in one year 50%. I mean, we might be at hyperinflation. It's crazy to think about, but we might be there where it just goes like, brrrr. I don't yeah. see how it stops. I don't see how it stops. I really well, they're don't. saying food, the re- real food increases 38% or something I heard recently. Not this silly little inflation that the government tells you, but real food prices are up 38% in the States, some places. I, mean, I don't know where yeah. meat and chicken. Well, we're, we're noticing. So is it good that we're late in this release of this episode because we have a YouTube strike? And does that mean that one strike no, com- we came off? we can't publish and- for a couple of weeks anyway, so. We can't publish on YouTube for a couple of weeks? It's like a two-week ban. Is that what it is? From publishing. So from, oh, so, so third strike, strike is a two-week ban and then the strike. come off before we're, we're, before we're allowed back on. So we're kicked off of YouTube right now? Yes. Well, wow. we just can't publish. Wow. Well, right, right. It's not like the channel's deleted, but we just can't add to it. Thanks, YouTube. I wish they'd tell us exactly what it was, but of course they won't, right? It's just medical misinformation. Medical misinformation. Yeah. I appealed. They were like, nope. 
We disagree. Fuck you. And that happened to be the one where the government called me in the middle of our intro and I talked to that government lady. I mean, is that why? I think it's got more to do with us bitching about the vaccines. Were we really? Did we really? This was the episode they pick? Really? Did we really? Yeah, yeah. Does it have anything to do with the the Ministry of Truth starting up and the disinformation expert? Even Leonard was going off about vaccines a little bit. Yeah, I mean, but dude, Leonard's not like. It makes you me think know, they're actually listening to it. I mean, what did you put in the fucking show notes? No, I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll, here, I'll read it to you. It's pretty. I thought it was pretty. Uh, pretty tame. You thought it was tame, pretty tame. Yeah. Leonard Lee Bushell joins us for a chat about his book, High Confessions of a Cannabis Addict, and his journeys before and after recovery. We chat about traveling in Israel, smuggling synchronicities big pharma drugs addiction homelessness blackouts and losing the cravings we also get into his organizations listed below the 12 steps emotional music legalization nonviolent crimes getting sober and staying creative in recovery leonard spent 26 years in daily use and has not been sober for the has now whoops i got a typo there now been sober for the same amount and then I got the petitions, the petitions in there. Maybe that's why it was, I was reading out the petitions for the government. I mean, is this, is this what it's at now? We can't, I was in the middle of reading the petitions for the government and I get a call from the government and that's just enough to give us a strike on YouTube. I mean, I'd love to know like exactly what was, they, don't tell you. That. they won't tell you. No. Okay. Here's a quote for you then. If, if you're going to be that way, YouTube, you, we're just going to go audio only and fuck you then. That was audio only. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, without even being on YouTube. So here, guess who wrote this? I believe that more than 90% of modern medicine could disappear from the face of the earth. Doctors, hospitals, drugs, and equipment. And the effect on our health would be immediate and beneficial. Huh. There you have it. Robert Mendelssohn, MD, author of Confessions of a Medical Heretic. I would have never guessed that. I guess Bob Marley, though. <laughs> Winning. Can I tell you about a little synchro about CAC, kind of, quickly? Sure. My own personal one. Personal synchro. Big shout out to Coach Chris. He uh, he gave me this book. It's a green this book. book. We can't see it. This book. <laughs> this book. This book no one can see off. it, but I can't see it because it's yeah, green. This, and- <laughs> this, book, this, this book jumped off the shelf to me. Uh, um, I won't read the very awesome personal note that he put in the book for me, but it's The Science of Immortality by D.N. Dunlop. Written in, uh, and I, I'm sure I've heard of this author in, the, in the, uh, some of the books we've done, but it's written in 1918. So my mom's staying with me here and I'm, I'm, and I'm showing her, look at this book, like, you know, written by this author about immortality in the early 1900s. And we open up the flap and there's the note in there and stuff. And it's from an old library and it's got in the bottom corner, it's got Miss MS or MS Townsend. 1675 Burnaby street. And I, and my mom goes, Hey, look at that. That's cause that's her, that's her maiden name. And I always thought it was spelled Townsend, but she says, no, no, it's spelled wrong. It's Townsend. But I look up the address, 1675 Burnaby Street, and it's right near where my Nana lived in Vancouver. 
like like a few i thought it was on this i was like oh my god is this the same place like is this actually like where my nana named townsend and it was written in the bottom book corner of the book but it was like literally just a couple blocks away from where my nana lived in vancouver so maybe we'll have to put that on audio is it old enough it is old enough i have one too but you have it what uh, he gave me one too but i think you have it unless it's in my suitcase it's either in my suitcase or in that box I gave you. The box of drugs and firearms that I had to smuggle <laughs> over the border unknowingly. Uh, it looks like it's not on Audible yet, too, so you might have to do that one. Bada bing, bada boom. There you go. Speaking of inflation, we are feeling the pinch over here as, uh, you know, we've had people having to, you know, as people can't afford their stuff, podcast subscriptions are the first thing to go uh especially the you know these value for value shows where you get all the content for free anyway so if you do you find yourself in the position where you can sign up for a monthly it is more important than ever to sign up support the show help us keep doing it help us keep growing help help us keep going signing up for events helps as well contact at the cabin.com head over to uh adultbrain.ca if you want to check out all the audiobooks but if you can sign up for a monthly that's really the the best way of all you know sign up for a buck a month or two bucks a month we're up to like 570 episodes over here something like that maybe not <laughs> actually I think it's 500 bless you oh, I wonder if I have COVID from the plane <laughs> um 544, I think, is actually what this is. I overshot. But still, all there for free. America.ca slash support. Sign up today. We would love you for it. And we would be in your debt. What do you got? Is that it? Yeah, let's uh, let's wrap this up. I got a really big synchro, and I still want to read a, read a big uh, story kind of email about our other show, Grand America Outlawed. I've been sort of procrastinating about it, but I think it's time to, to read it. It's a little controversial, but since YouTube's already, you know, messing with us, we might as well just keep going. That's right. All right. Well, we'll get uh, into this chat with Mark Steves and enjoy it. joining us welcome to grimerica i think this might be your first time solo on here this is my first time period yeah oh. it's a pleasure to be here and uh you both have joined me on my podcast oh, so this is 
Yeah, this isn't our first time talking, but it's a pleasure. As somebody who's been listening to the Grimerica show for years, this is a big moment. I'll try to keep it together. Oh, no worries, dude. No, it's it's great to talk to you. I mean, we've been on many other shows together too and stuff over the years, so it's it's nice to finally have you here because you know you got an interesting background, intro, interesting synchromistic journey into what you're doing now, and and then we can sort of dig into some details about uh, other stuff like skull and bones. I do have some questions, specific questions on that. So why don't we start there? Like you're you know you're you're delivering stuff and listening to alternative podcasts and kind of manifested uh this reality for yourself eh? absolutely and uh you know i should preface by preface by saying you know i've always been sort of a uh outsider black sheep you know a different type of person and uh eventually whatever took me so long i found all these great authors that i had loved and been reading were being interviewed on these amazing podcasts like yours so it was a perfect fit. I dove right in, became a big fan. And uh, one of the big themes that I learned a lot about from your show is this synchronicity factor. And it's not just something that happens between you and the guests or even just the guests in their lives. It's something that actually I noticed happened between you and your audience. And it really excited me because I had sort of lived a synchronistic life prior to this without realizing so I have to give you guys credit. I think your show really helped uh, elaborate on some of the nuances, you know, because you, you really took like a, a huge um, survey, so to speak, of all these different people who whatever it was that gravitated them to your show, there is usually some sort of interesting, you know, conscious nodal point that you can trace it back to. So for me, podcasting was a huge tool uh, I actually found jobs as a delivery guy because I love podcasting so much. I, I had worked a Chinese food delivery job out of high school. And then when I started getting interested in podcasts, I was also sort of in the market for a new job. And I said, why don't I try delivering again? Because I'll be getting paid to listen to podcasts. So that became my life the three years prior to the pandemic. And Obviously, when that happened, working for a company that was employed by Amazon, uh, the the hammer, you know, came down. The freedom that I had as a delivery guy. I mean, I'm talking podcast in my ears, eight hours throughout the shift. I don't have to talk to anybody. You know, I'm just dropping packages on stoops and front porches. So I was getting away with a lot. It was a great job, a tremendous sort of freedom, you know, albeit I was still working for the man inside. I was, I was experiencing a sort of freedom that now I have the, the sort of grateful opportunity to indulge in, but that's getting ahead of myself. So I'm listening to the Grimerica show. I'm listening to tinfoil hat, the higher side chats, and I'm noticing the synchronicity and specifically with tinfoil hat being a, a fan of, of Sam Tripoli and feeling like I had a sense of where he was at. I mean, that was sort of foolish in hindsight, but I, I had this thought like he should read this book. And the book I had in mind was the Kabbalion, right? It's a, uh, also known as the seven hermetic laws as written by the great Hermes, Trismegistus, and so on. I'm sure you guys are very familiar with them as we've narrated Manly P. Hall, and he talks a bunch about that. But 
for me at that moment in time and for Sam Tripoli, again, this is all pre pandemic. Um, you know, I felt like this would be something that Sam needed at that point in time. Uh, he was talking a lot about the simulation. He was talking a lot about ancient cultures. And for me, I felt like there is a consciousness spirituality aspect missing. And, and even if it just meant that one interaction of giving him the book and, and, and never, you know, uh, receiving anything, you know, any kind of reply that that's all that really mattered in that moment. And I got to, uh, excuse the motorcycles. I live on a busy street and it's Friday and you know, they're all, they're all whipping around. So excuse that if, if you hear any buzzing in the background, but Anyways, to, to make this long story very short, I met Sam Tripley. I gave him the book and something resonated with him, whether it was through meeting me or the book itself, something resonated. And we ultimately connected, podcasted together on his uh, Patreon back when he still had a Patreon. And one thing led to another and he started this spiritual podcast called Zero. And I'm like, one of the first guests on it, episode three. And after the conversation was over, Sam's like, so who do you think, uh, who do you think I should have on next? I'm like, well, let me get back to you. You know, and an hour later, two hours later, I emailed him 20, 30 people, you know, that I had seen on your show, higher side chats, all these people that as a, as a fan, I'm just like, Oh, if Sam talks to these people, that'd be great. You know? And next thing I know, he's saying, Hey, why don't you, you know, email these people and, everybody that gets back to you and you can get on my show, I'll pay you, you know, and that led to ultimately me booking for tinfoil hat zero and his other Patreon content. Well, now it's Rockfin content, but initially it was Patreon and, and yeah, that was, you know, as you might expect a tremendous opportunity to basically you know, rise above the, maybe like the average startup podcaster, you know, gave me a, a lot of clout that I was able to use to book really interesting guests on my show. As you guys know, you joined me on episode 20, which was really cool of you guys to, to do that for me while I was still young. Cause as I've already said many times, I'm belaboring this point, but I'm a big fan of yours. So all that being said, something about my life had prepared me for this job that you can't find in a newspaper ad. You can't find in your human resources, you know, homeroom, high school, you know, when they're telling you, oh, what's your career on career day? Booking a conspiracy podcast is certainly not on any of those lists. So I don't know what it was, but I've always been fascinated in these things. And, you know, through synchronicity, uh, I had the opportunity to to really step into this world in a in a really unique and engaging way. Uh, and now, obviously, I have my own podcast titled Aptly because my family thinks I'm crazy, and uh, they especially think I'm crazy now that I quit my job and I'm doing this full time. But it's it's paying off so far, and uh, and yeah, there are so many things that I've learned in hindsight that I'd love to touch on with you guys here today because. You know, where I grew up, it's not a particularly privileged place. It's a suburb in one of the wealthiest states in the United States. But as you guys might know, usually next to the biggest cities and, you know, where the most action is, there's also, you know, some of the biggest poverty and some of the biggest sort of uh, depravity even, right? So Connecticut is sort of like that. And I kind of grew up in this comfortable period between 
you know, 1990 and 2000, 2001, shattered everything. I'm sure you've heard this from many of your guests that 9-11 was a, a big moment. But as a third grader living only uh, 50 miles away from where that happened, it was pretty big. You know, it was a monumental sort of experience. I remember getting uh, walked home from school, you know, and uh, we left early that day. And ever since then, I had, I'd really questioned what was going on in the world. Not that I had any sort of suspicion about the government. I was really interested in the military and espionage and how all that worked. But I, I recognized that there was something in the world that was not right. And my heart was, was sort of set on figuring that out. And at first, it expressed, it expressed itself in the propagandized, manipulated way. You know, like many Americans, I was like, kill the terrorists, get them all, you know. And, and as that, you know, slowly sort of immatured and, and my mind matured, I realized how foolish that was. And, and right along that time, we were swept into this Bernie Sanders free the world energy. And I really hope to not get political here, but that was sort of the atmosphere that I grew up in, you know, high school, I graduated in 2012. Uh, and there was this sort of anonymous group of hackers that were, you know, the renegades of the internet. So all of these counterculture, maybe even anti-political ideas were going through my head. And, you know, of all places, I go to a community college on the doorstep of Yale after I graduated high school. It's only a couple towns over, but you know, I was didn't want to fly too far from the nest. So I went to, you know, a safe bet, a community college in New Haven. And when I was there, I really enjoyed spending more time in the park, smoking a joint, reading from the books I enjoyed reading rather than spending time on the curriculum, which eventually led to me dropping out. But while I was there in that park, reading books and exploring consciousness on a very sort of uh, neophyte level, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't claim to be uh, an expert or a guru, especially at that age and certainly not at this age. But I was interested in that stuff, you know, and shamanism particularly had a sort of um, a vibe, you know, vibratory chord that was struck. And it wasn't because of the pot I was smoking. It was because I'd always felt a deep connection to the natural world. And, and when I was a kid, that expressed itself just by trying to learn what every animal was and what these trees were. And I was always trying to classify the natural world. And when I started smoking cannabis, I think a lot of people start to have, you know, paradigm shifting thoughts. But for me, I started to realize that I had, for the most part of my life, had a very materialized way of thinking of the world. Things were not spiritual to my young mind. And Cannabis and shamanism brought a whole nother aspect of that into my life. And right at this period, I meet a man uh, who you know, didn't look like anybody I'd ever seen in Connecticut, to be quite honest. Very short, very tan, dark, slick black hair. Uh, and you know, he introduced himself to me because he saw I had Sitting Bull on my T-shirt, you know, very famous Native American Sitting Bull. And uh, we started talking, 
started smoking a joint or something like that. And he gets to telling me why he moved to New Haven, you know, because I could I could sense that he was an outsider. He was dressed like a cowboy. Also, I should mention, you know, not with the hat or anything, but typical, you know, Midwestern garb. And uh, and yeah, he just struck me as an outsider. So we we you know, as someone who's always felt like an outsider in my own community, we sort of hit it off. And he taught me, you know, not only about Native American spirituality, but specifically what drew him to New Haven, Connecticut initially, which is a story that you guys might be familiar with. I might have even, you know, told you this when you guys were on my podcast, uh, but Geronimo, you know, very legendary warrior, some would even say one of the most famous Native Americans, at least in the West, uh, and at least in the American zeitgeist. His skull and bones allegedly were robbed from its grave, you know, his grave in uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And from there, taken to the tomb on High Street in Yale University's campus. And this is why Amos... This man who became sort of like a mentor to me. Uh, This is why he moved to New Haven all the way from Arizona. And every day at noon, you know, and this is this is a sort of vow of poverty, sort of pilgrimage. You know, He, he didn't have like any place to stay. He was homeless for the first few months that he came to New Haven. But he would stand in front of the tomb on High Street and he would scream Geronimo's name every day at noon, you know, as loud as he could. It was so loud that, I mean, it it rivaled the the school bell, you know, like it, it reverberated through the campus. And I had the privilege of of standing next to him one day when he did that. And he explained to me, like, this isn't for attention. This isn't, you know, even for any sort of action, you know, this isn't some kind of magic. He says, I'm connecting with the spirit of my ancestor. I'm connecting with somebody who had a very, very serious crime committed against him in the afterlife. And for whatever reason, Amos was drawn, you know, to this place, obviously the reason being Geronimo, but why him? You know, he's not someone who claims like, oh, I'm the great grandson or and he's, again, not looking for any publicity with this sort of thing. But what he's doing is he's praying to Geronimo. He's praying to the spirit that's trapped inside of this cold, dark fraternity room, uh, piled, you know, female is that what, bones. Is that what the crime was? Is the ex- exhuming of the bones and putting it there? Well, I mean, Geronimo's afterlife. As Darren knows, you know, he's been on my show to talk about this. There were a myriad of crimes committed against the Native Americans. But, you know, amongst being imprisoned, captured many times, uh, yeah, once he was buried. And I do believe he died peacefully. He didn't die in a war. He did die peacefully, Geronimo. Um, but his his grave was robbed. And, you know, this is something that we would consider a spiritual crime, you know, across all cultures, not just native American cultures. Um, and that's what needs to be reconciled. And, you know, people like Ned Anderson in the past have tried to take political means to do stuff by going to senators and, and trying to make a sort of, uh, these claims. And really, I think the, the proof is in the grave site, 
when you go to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, to see where purportedly Geronimo is buried, they've paved over the spot with cement and created sort of like a stone monument, a stone pyramid. And it's not, I don't know if it's, um, if it's something that like his own tribe would have even made, you know, it's not, I don't know if it's accurate to his heritage, which is disturbing. You know, this is something that, uh, that I think it's happened on so many different levels that what I'm attempting to do, and I, I really am grateful for this opportunity. And I should say that this is the beginning of a sort of process that was inspired by Michael Wan and Ross Ben. Michael Wan, you've had on the show before. Not sure if you had Ross Ben yet, but you are. No, have. but I want I want to have him on. I want to talk to him about uh, some historic figures and vampires yeah. and stuff. Like banking? Well, or like, what? Like banking figures? No, American like... Figures? Uh, like uh, Who's the one I'm thinking of that I that I love? Uh, Saint Germain. Count, count, yeah, Saint Germain. Yeah. Geronimo. Uh, they never let Geronimo out of prison after the Indian Wars. He died in jail. Okay. So not peacefully. I Same apologize. thing they would have done with Crazy Horse if they would, but uh, he got killed instead. When they tried to arrest him, he ended up getting killed. And you know what's interesting? When I was doing my research, uh, and thank you for for clarifying. Darren, because there is so many points of information, it's hard to keep them all together. But one of the things that I learned when I was looking through newspaper archives was that, you know, there's the famous skulls that the Skull and Bones have, have allegedly taken into their tomb, like Martin Van Buren, obviously, Geronimo. But there are other less notable people. I mean, one who was sort of an outlaw, a guy named the Apache Kid. If you go and search him on uh chronicling America and look through the newspaper archives, you'll find a very curious story about how these Chicago businessmen tracked down this outlaw named the Apache kid. They obviously had a, a proper name. They weren't using that in the newspaper article, but they tracked him down, surrounded his camp while he was sleeping, murdered him, and then came back, you know, after his body had been weathered and taken the skull and sent it to the skull and bones society at Yale University. Uh, and I got to imagine if you're a cowboy reading a newspaper at that time and you see that, you think like, oh, Skull and Bones Society, they sound like a great group to take care of that. You know, they, they must deal with bones and, and the such, you know, if they had only known that Skull and Bones was founded on secret society, espionage and drug smuggling and specifically where the three meet. That's so is there a power? Nexus. Is there a is there a spiritual power in bringing these old, fa like famous people or powerful people or uh, into their bones into there? Is that is there a ritual with that or something? Absolutely, I think um, one of the most famous cases for this is Saint John the Baptist, right? And allegedly the the Templars and even the Masons have rituals uh, where you know Saint John the Baptist skull was used as somewhat of an oracle, and then. Uh, in that vein, other skulls have since been used, whether ritually as mock, you know, skulls or uh, even, you know, because of their prominence. People like Geronimo, people like Martin Van Buren, the only uh, president of the United States who is not blood related to the rest. You know, these people, for whatever reason, in their lifetime made an impact and again, 
get curiously, I don't think there are any coincidences. That's just my personal opinion. Um, they get collected uh, post-mortem and brought to this tomb. And I think absolutely, Graham, it's for the spiritual significance. And I would even venture so far as to say, and, you know, I'm, I'm a Catholic, French-Canadian, you know, grown boy. I'm not like versed in Native American culture or religion. But what I've heard and what I've garnered through studying is that the placement of the body, the placement of the skeleton, the placement of the remains of the human body are very important, not just in Native American culture, but we see examples of this in Egypt, China, all over the world. People are buried with significant objects. People are buried with significant loved ones. Kings kill their whole families to be buried with them when it's their time to die. So, there's clearly a esoteric line of thinking uh, as to the significance of a skeleton. What its purposes are in a ritual context is a murky, murky subject. You know, this is the stuff of secret societies and occult, which, you know, we just use two words for hidden there in that one phrase. And we all recognize those terms in this conspiracy podcasting, alternative podcasting, spiritual podcasting world. Um, but rarely do the actual occult things ever see the light. And I think what's so interesting with Yale University and Skull and Bones is there have been uh, many opportunities for these dark creatures to be exposed to the light. And there's a record of it. And, you know, it's not often talked about. And I have to give a lot of credit to Chris Milligan the creator of Trine Day, who I know you guys have had Bruce DeTorris on your show. He's sort of Chris's right-hand man over there at Trine Day. And obviously you've had many of their authors on the show. We had Chris on too once, yeah. On, okay. On yeah. Right on. And, you know, Chris is, is behind republishing Anthony Sutton's seminary work on Skull and Bones, America's Secret Establishment. But he also compiled a series of really interesting articles in a book called Fleshing Out Skull and Bones. And these two books uh, really inspired me at a young age, you know, to believe Amos, because keep in mind, I'm just a naive college kid, almost a college dropout, smoking weed, cutting class at a park and a homeless guy's telling me about all this stuff. So to my parents, I was nuts, you know, but to us, I mean, this sounds like some Kind of academic stuff and and i'm comfortable uh talking about these controversial subjects in an academic way because i'm a college dropout but you know i have no academic structure so uh people obviously can sort of uh, take everything i'm saying with a big helping of salt but at the end of the day i'm only resting on the shoulders of you know guys like chris milligan anthony sutton uh, Michael Wan and Ross Ben even, and uh, obviously my mentor Amos, who really sort of brought this to my awareness in a tangible, physical way. And if you'll allow me, um, here's where it connects to the podcasting world, because, you know, as I mentioned before, I was a delivery guy. I sought this job out to listen to podcasts, to educate myself. I'm like, 
I didn't get paid to learn about all this stuff. Graham and Darren set up the Grimerica School of Higher Learning and I'm uh, I'm enrolling. You know, I was on your Patreon since, I don't know, 2018 when you guys did Outlawed. It took me a couple months, but I, I made it onto the plus. And, uh, you know, I think that's the sort of karmic link that really allowed for it to be like a... Um, I don't know. You know, I, I've, I've thought a lot about this, but I do always say that when I supported you guys, tinfoil hat, higher side chats, something changed in my life. Cause in all honesty, I wasn't making a lot of money to afford to spend, you know, 30, $40 a month on all these podcasts together combined a month. You know, it just, it didn't make financial sense, but I knew deep down, like this is going to lead somewhere. So as I'm listening to podcasts, delivering bread of all things uh, in the morning, three in the morning uh, to Yale University, because the bakery I worked for, a German bakery, uh, had a contract with Yale. So I would be in certain Yale University buildings at hours when other people just weren't, right? So uh, with my mindset, you can only imagine what I tried to pull off. I wasn't very successful. The place is well guarded, but I snuck around as much as I could get away with. And, uh, you know, one of the things that really struck me is the level of security at a college like Yale. And I understand why. I mean, there's been many things that have happened in the news and uh, many, you know, tragedies that would maybe beef up their security. But I think this is something that is underestimated because Yale, not only do they have a very beefy security system, they also have a very interesting underground network that connects buildings together. So although I didn't spend much time underground in New Haven, uh, I did have a sort of sense of the the scope because I remember pulling my phone out, looking at my GPS and realizing I was underneath a street, thinking I was still in a building. You know, these buildings are sort of like mazes and, and I'm stoned at four in the morning delivering bread. So I got lost a couple of times, but either way, it is sort of uh, local lore even that, you know, given that Yale is a big medical school, that there are certain trap doors that lead to tunnels where maybe homeless or impoverished people uh, late at night stumbling along in the street get pulled into these tunnels and then maybe become cadavers for experiments at Yale University. And if we have time to get through some of the connections I have, uh, you'll see that you know Yale and specifically Skull and Bones has uh, a web that connects to the Nazis. It connects to obviously the United States government. It connects to the judicial system. It connects to the economic system. It connects to the chemical companies. It connects to the drug smugglers. It connects National to national labs. <laughs> that, and I'm almost certain, you know, that's somewhere on the periphery as well, but that's not my forte. Uh, but you guys have done a really great job covering all those subjects. So I have to give you guys kudos uh, on that. But no, I, 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 although I don't doubt it, and I'm almost certain Carl Wood did an episode on it last year, that there is some sort of connection. Uh, that's not primarily what I'm here with. You know, I sort of have a more of a wide scope um, 
but I'm kind of rambling. If you guys want to ask some questions. Yeah, I'd... no, I mean, it's, it's, there's so much there to sort of tease <laughs> up. I want to, I want to kind of picture the, the, uh, the map. Like, so New Haven is a little, it was founded with Yale, right? Like it's a town that was like sort of a part of Yale. Is it like where well, Yale remember, University is? Remember what I said? And yes, it is absolutely a, a campus town. Like right. the town and, is built around the campus. And, um, and, and Skull and Bones is in there somewhere. Right, right. Okay. And I have some info about that. But specifically when it pertains to St. John the Baptist, remember what I said about his skull and maybe him even being an oracle. Well, New Haven Colony, which was one of the wealthiest colonies, it was not connected to the Boston Colony. It was not connected to the Philadelphia Colony. It was its own separate colony. It was founded on St. John the Baptist Day, okay, right, Uh, by a man named John Cabot. And the people that moved in there really believed in what a lot of the early settlers believed in, you know, a lot of radical religious ideas that, uh, you know, weren't welcome anymore in Europe, specifically in New Haven. These people were Zionists, right, which I'm sure raises a lot of red flags and and, uh, you know, perks up a lot of people's ears. Uh, But they believed in this sort of new Zion idea and the second coming of Christ, something that, you know, we're familiar with under maybe the broader scope of apocalyptic Christianity. This is the type of people that first settled New Haven. And you have to imagine who they interacted with, you know, the the Native Americans, the Quinnipiac, who sold the uh, land to the first people, uh, John Cabot and some other people, uh, you know, they were doing things that <laughs> now are remembered as devilish. Like if you go around New England, you'll see devil's den, devil's this, devil's cave. Everything's called devil's this, devil's that. And that's because, you know, all these folks who moved to New England were very, very uh, superstitious and had, you know, these very in- interesting and uh, most cases, extreme Christian ideas, you know, not, not in every case, in some cases with the Shakers and the Quakers, they actually got along very well with certain groups of Native Americans. But for the most part, anything Native American was considered pagan, devilish, and that kind of led to uh, a lot of weird clashes. The other interesting thing to note is that certain tribes in this area uh, were said to practice child sacrifice. So, you know, whether that's true or not, whether that's something that the, you know, colonists cooked up to create fear or propagandize the Native Americans, uh, we don't know for sure. But there are early accounts of, uh, you know, Native Americans taking a child, ritually killing them. And, you know, the colonizers were, the colonizers were sort of on the periphery. They lived nearby and they witnessed these things. They wrote them down. I have a, a lot of like Connecticut state records that I've looked through and found these sort of very striking similarities between the cultures that were here and the Aztec cultures, the, the Mayan cultures, the cultures of you know Mesoamerica, which is something Darren shared his insights on uh, when him and I spoke on my podcast. But you know, to connect it maybe back to me as a delivery guy. Uh, Here's where the synchronicity really, really sunk in. Um, I was delivering to a typical Tuesday delivery. It was the Yale Economics Building. And the janitor did not 
really seem friendly. And, uh, you know, one day he's like, well, you know, I'm going to tell you how to get in here because I would always really bug him. You know, I'm knocking on the door, knocking on the door. He's vacuuming. He can't hear me. So one day he teaches me how to like sneak in to the economics building. There's like a secret door. You got to jump over a fence, this whole thing. He's like, you look athletic. You could do this. You know, I'm like, okay, cool. So every Tuesday I'm, I'm almost breaking into this building. And, um, one Tuesday, I'm in the building. I look down at the Yale University newspaper and I see George H.W. Bush dies today. And it said, you know, former resident of New Haven lived at 88 Hill House Avenue, the exact building I was standing in. Right. So this whole time, every Tuesday, I had been delivering pastries and going in around this house that was the former home of the Bush family. You know, big time CIA, big time Skull and Bones, probably one of the more notable Skull and Bones. And we'll see just with H.W. Bush's track record alone, the myriad of connections. I mean, we're talking about the ambassador to China, right? All of the Skull and Bones history connects to the opium wars with China. Anyways, so this sort of tremendous synchronicity kind of hit me and that's when I realized it had been too long since I seen Amos and I tried my best to reconnect with him because it had been several years since uh, I had last talked to him and we've talked since then, but you know, over and over I would be drawn back, you know, and that was one of the more pronounced synchronicities where I was in this man's house the day he died, <laughs> you know, now it coincidentally is the economics department of Yale. Uh, but, you know, it's it's very it's very like personal for me. You know, I feel even slighted and I, I don't you know, I'm not exactly proud of that. But I think there's a, a economic disparity that's been created here and across the world. Thanks to the elite connected people within Skull and Bones. Wow. He's all in there. What's that? Who's all in there? Oh, inside of uh, the Department of Economics, the, the Bush home? Skull and Bones. Oh, okay. Give well, us a, I, a rundown of some notables. Yeah, yeah. Well, at, really, you know, it starts with Yale himself. Elahu Yale is the person who Yale's name you know, comes from. And he was a member of the British East India Company. I'm sure you know what their reputation was. Uh, not to mention Nathan Hale was one of the um, graduates of Yale's 1773 class. He was a member of the Lenonian Society, which was one of the first secret societies in Yale University. They've had almost 20 secret societies throughout the history of Yale Nine today exists, but to get to some of the names, um, William H. Russell and Alfonso Taft are always talked about as the founders, but really William H. Russell's power came from his brother, Samuel Russell, who was the founder of the Russell and Company, which was uh, importing Turkish opium, right? And they merged with the Bostonian opium smugglers, uh, who were the Perkins family. And those folks, connecting back to eugenics again, they had all recently really lost their uh, 
a silver spoon because slavery had become illegal. And that was the primary um, trade that these Boston Brahmins, as they're now called, you know, they were slave traders. And, um, you know, that comes back up with Yale. One of the founding members of Yale, Ezra Stiles, was one of the first people to suggest that we should send the freed slaves back to Africa. So Yale has a, a very dark history of racism and and certainly eugenics but really the opium war is where the money really kind of came in and founder william h russell went on to found the national guard here in connecticut many members since have found prominence in the military so there's also been that sort of military order and as i said nathan hale graduate of yale university connecticut's hero was one of the first spies in American history. He was a member of the Culper Ring, which was part of, you know, these patriots who were spying on England to uh, you know, free America. So, you know, Yale, from its beginning, has been a place of espionage, drug smuggling, and secret societies, naturally being a part of society, uh, found their place there too, but specifically elite secret societies, you know. Um, but where Skull and Bones power really comes from is with three guys who are probably unknown to most people, Timothy Dwight, Daniel Gilman, and Andrew D. White. Okay, uh, Daniel Gilman founded the University of California, John Hopkins, Carnegie, Peabody, Slater, and the Russell Sage Foundation, all huge, huge players in just the world at that time and even more so now. Uh, not to mention Andrew D. White founded Cornell and was the first ambassador to Russia and the first ambassador, maybe not the first, but an ambassador to Berlin, um, as well as the founder of the American Historical Society. All the Tartarian nuts are probably going crazy hearing that because, yes, folks, they are rewriting history. Maybe not that drastically, but that's a conversation for another day. Uh, and then, of course, they started the science um, school at Yale, which is known as the Sheffield Science School. And what's interesting about that is not only did the Sheffield Science School really innovate uh, a type of uh, gasoline distillation, which we both, you know, we all know here how important oil comes in in the whole conspiracy zeitgeist, how oil has been a big power, especially in the 19th century, uh, big money maker. And they were innovating this kind of science at the Sheffield Science School. And not only that, they used the Sheffield Science School within Yale to take over. When I say they, I mean skull and bones after they had been founded. They used the the power of the science school to take over the rest of Yale. So by the mid-1800s, Yale was completely at the mercy of Skull and Bones. And this had raised uh, a lot of you know suspicion amongst the students who weren't tapped. Because keep in mind, they only allow 15 juniors to become members of Skull and Bones. And when I say juniors, I mean, you know, you only like you're getting tapped at the end of your junior year. So you're only a part of skull and bones for that last senior year. Not only does that sort of create this atmosphere of secrecy, because I mean, the seniors at any school have that sort of, you know, Oh, they're the top dogs, but also they're leaving. So that, you know, once they have all these crazy rituals, they're gone, you know, they're not telling 
their classmates and undergraduate classmates, you know, what's going on in this secret society. But I should. So that's almost so that's almost really I, I, I don't think I ever really pictured it this way, but it's a really good recruitment strategy. You know, you have this one high end university with a lot of high end courses. It's full of prestige. And then you get to tap the shoulder of the the, the elite elite of those people or the people you think are going to be who knows how they monitor them along the way or whatever. But they know that these people will play ball in their machinations or whatever those are. And like I stated, you know, founding all those colleges subsequently after rising to power at Yale University, I mean, the network that they now have is incredible. And we have to kind of take a step back and remind people that at this time, you know, prior to Skull and Bones founding, again, secret societies were fashionable. People were a part of them. It was a normal thing. And uh, Phi Kappa Beta okay, was a fraternity that was started at the College of William and Mary. That might ring some bells considering your conversations about Shakespeare. He kind of has some interesting lore that's connected there. Um, but Phi Kappa Beta, or Phi Beta Kappa, uh, you know, their second chapter was then formed at Yale in 1780, right? This is like early, early days. And I should also mention that a lot of the founders of Skull and Bones were inspired by Germans, people in Berlin, people like uh, Hegel, who, you know, now is remembered for his Hegelian dialect, right? Something that we're all kind of uh, in the middle of, uh, pun intended. But it's uh, it's certainly curious, you know, considering what we know allegedly about Adam Weissop and the Illuminati, because all of this inspiration was coming from Germany, where this guy was and all these other people who had this high ideal of what the state was and how the state should control society. And, you know, they'd even make declarations like pretty soon the state will raise all your children for you. You know, they would just come out and say this at the University of Berlin to to the people of Germany. So, you know, this is the type of thinking that went into creating Phi Kappa, Phi Beta Kappa, uh, which eventually evolved into Skull and Bones and some of the other secret societies, because in 1832, there is a sort of uh, American freak out similar to the communist scare where everybody was very anti-Masonic. William Morgan was famously murdered uh, allegedly by the Masons. And there was these big scandals. uh, The teapot scandal, I think was one of them uh, involving not only Masons, but also, you know, the same sorts of people that ended up joining Skull and Bones. And this created a lot of panic and and this anti-Masonic movement was created and and groups like Phi Beta Kappa were like, well, we don't want to be secretive. We want to be, you know, ostensible. We want to present ourselves to society. We have nothing to hide. So these groups became sort of like the above ground and then Skull and Bones, Wolf's Head. Uh, and Scroll and Keys, the sort of three major secret societies at Yale, they subsequently formed and then others formed after them. Some other ones are the Berzelius Society, the Manuscript Society. You know, there are about nine, eight or nine prominent ones that still exist. And, and one of them is pretty much the opposite of a secret society. Like they even give tours of their little lodge. But uh you have to sort of understand, like, given how popular these secret societies or just, you know, source of societies were, 
when it became unfashionable, unfashionable to be a part of them, the modus operandi, the the reason why the like the political gears behind these groups still needed to turn, so they just went underground and created groups like the Skull and Bones, and you know. When we get into this conversation, people want to know, well, do they sit naked in a tomb and confess all their secrets like we see in the Skulls movie? And to that, I would say, yeah, probably. I mean, that's one of many things, but I think that's one of these safe sort of counter-op, sort of counterintelligence types of, you know, they give you just enough to make the girls and immature people laugh and say, oh, yeah, the... The uh, Boodle Boys are up to no good, uh, you know, and that that's the Boodle Boys is like a sort of local term for skull and bones back in the day. But, you know, what I think is going on, connecting some other researchers like Michael Hoffman, who was recently on my podcast, and, you know, uh, obviously Chris Milligan, who I mentioned, I think there is a sort of magic at play where the spiritual energy of the Native Americans has been taken and reversed in this way where their icons, their notable, powerful people were exhumed from their graves and brought to this tomb, Uh, you know, not to mention all of the eugenics programs that came from prominent academics in that time, moving Native Americans to their reservations, uh, all these sorts of things happening. I think there's a sort of teleological, metaphysical landscape magic going on in the, the building of Yale University, where it is uh, in its position. It's sort of a, an aligned position. If we look at some of the ley lines that people like Peter Shampoo have drawn and Glenn Kreisberg draws a really interesting ley line uh, from the tip of Long Island, which is that, you know, island that comes under Connecticut, stretching out for New York for you Canada folks. I don't know if you know the East Coast off the top of your head, but Long Island Sound stretches out past Connecticut. And if you draw a line from there up to Thunder Bay, Michigan, uh, which is sort of like this arm that stretches off of uh, north of Wisconsin there into two of the Great Lakes, you see this alignment forming of sacred places for the Iroquois nation. And up at the top, sort of vaguely in the periphery, is a place that the Iroquois, certain tribes, regarded as the Garden of the Gods or the Islands of the Manitou, right? And this is a place that's now called the Thousand Islands in upstate New York. It's between Canada and New York. And Skull and Bones has this, you know, private island up there called Deer Island. And considering, you know, the alignments of various buildings that they've been behind the creation of, the selection of this island, and, you know, myriad of other things that have yet to be mapped out, I think what's going on here is this sort of geomantic magic uh the likes of which you know we see in maybe uh, uh you know the isles of britain with you know the churches sort of taking over each other's holy lands and holy places i think this took place uh 
within masonry in the United States, but specifically headed by groups like Skull and Bones, Wolf's Head Lodge, and, you know, this sort of after post-college society of people, because after they graduate, they receive a grandfather clock, they receive $20,000. I'm sure it's more, you know, you have to adjust for inflation nowadays, Uh, but they receive these sort of symbolic esoteric gifts and bones men when they're buried uh, are said to be accompanied by many other bones men in their wake and they always leave a sickle and a bale of or a, a, a thrust of wheat on their grave which we know are saturnian symbols uh, hence the alternate name for skull and bones which is the brotherhood of death or the order of death. So, you know, the sort of idea that has come to me over the past few years is take up the torch that Amos passed to me, shed light on this stuff. Not so people will go and knock down the tomb door and take the skulls out, but so that these crimes cannot go unpunished, you know, bring it, raise the awareness of the average person so that these things can no longer happen again in the future. Who, who are some other prominent members uh, in contemporary society today that we would think of? Well, one that really like shaped culture, and uh, I don't know how much it affects you guys in Canada, but Time Magazine was created by uh, Skull and Bones, Henry Luce. And you see this magazine pop culture have a tremendous influence on people. Um, obviously, they have a lot of influence on the art scene as well but henry luce specifically started time magazine he started fortune 500 magazine which you know is supposed to be like the magazine of the rich and the wealthy uh but it's you know that's something i have off the top of my head but if you'll excuse me I yeah have yeah and my... i got a couple i want to i also want to uh, talk about uh that three two two before i forget because it comes up uh, on something else personal all the time with the 322, and I wondered why they picked 322. So 322, to what I understand, has kind of a disputed but uh, kind of agreed upon multiple origins. So Demosthenes, Demosthenes is, yep. a, is a Greek person who was either you know born or died in 322 AD. That's sometimes cited as the significance. I think the significance uh, has been sort of proven by Anthony Sutton and and Chris Milligan with their research, where they show that A, Skull and Bones was founded in 1832, hence the 32, and B, it was the second chapter of a German organization. So the number 322 took its significance from a log that, you know, keep in mind, pre-internet they're keeping inner documents of you know archives and what they say at their meetings and stuff so three two two would be at the top of their little archive and as sort of lame as that sounds that seems to be (laughs) what anthony sutton i know i just uh, feel like there's got to be more significance to it than just like well i have heard that i'm sorry no go ahead i have heard that uh this gentleman who i probably butchered his name from greece that he was not a very savory character. He was doing things like, you know, sacrificing children and other things that uh, 
maybe people who are a little more inflammatory with their research can kind of come and connect. But I don't think we have to necessarily go that far. I think the the number, if anything, just shows us how the group started, where can its I, origins are. Can but I go if further you have, back? I'll if go, you have, I, yeah, I got please tell me. That came to me today. Tell me. Um, Bacchus, Bacchus and Dionysus were resurrected on March 25th. And if you go with the three day, the three, the typical three day sort of death and then resurrection kind of meme, because the resurrection is like all over the place. It's not just Jesus, right? So on March 25th, which happens to be my sobriety date, which is why I re- recognize it as a sort of a date of resurrection, but Bacchus and Dionysus, apparently. That comes from Manly P. Hall's book, I think, or the or the or Isis Unveiled or Secret Doctrine or something, but what if it was like the three days prior to that, the death of them, like skull and bones, the death three days before the resurrection? Where would the 22 come in? Maybe did I miss the three days before the 20, the 25th is the resurrection, but it's uh, that, you okay, know, the three day, okay. the three day yes. length of time uh, that always seems to happen prior to the resurrection. Well, and I is would that not. Christmas I, I, or that's Easter, right? No, Mark. Uh, no, just I don't when think anyone so. dies, everyone dies some, just three days, motherfucker. Some three days. Some years it's Easter, right? Because the solstice the is twenty-one, yeah, and the sol- sun rises March, again on the twenty-fifth. Right? That's the equinox. Yeah. Is it? That's the, the equinox. Ex- yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, and and this idea that you just mentioned of resurrection is alive in the architecture of the city itself because uh, the tomb, which happens to be, you know flanked on three sides by art galleries and museums, which for the most part hold a lot of ancient relics, at least the sort of more modern one. It has a big, big carving of an Anunnaki from uh, Mesopotamia. I mean, that always just shocked me. I mean, it's huge. He's wearing a wristwatch and this was supposedly carved in, you know, who knows when BC. And this is, you know, in a building only a block, you know, less than, you know, five minute walk from their little headquarters. And what I also found out when I was looking through the newspapers is that their old lodge that they would actually sleep in was on that property that then became the art museum. So this block where their tomb is, they own it. And, uh, and, you know, um, down the street is the old burying grounds of New Haven and a man named uh, Samuel, St. John Samuel, I think is his name, was buried in this sort of mausoleum, right? Uh, not an underground burial, like a, above ground, encapsulated in this same stone that they used to build the secret society tomb. They used it to build an archway over the graveyard that says the dead shall be raised in sort of ominous capital letters. And uh, and St. And, and John, uh, whether or not, you know, he's definitely not the actual St. John the Baptist, but we, they play these name games, you know, very often. And, and I think that's where the significance is. And as I mentioned earlier, New Haven is... Uh, you know, just as much an underground city as it is an above ground city. The only difference is really only Yale has purview over the underground side of New Haven. And I wouldn't be surprised if underneath High Street, the street that is a one way street and goes from the tomb to the graveyard, um, 
I wouldn't be surprised if they have some kind of underground tunnel that follows the same path and takes them, you know, from their tomb down to the graveyard where similar to Paris, which anybody who goes to New Haven, it always marvels at the neo-Gothic towers and all these amazing neo-Gothic sort of uh, carvings and reliefs and statues, very similar to France, where they have, you know, this catacomb uh, underground, you know, uh, Really made creepy. of skulls, yeah, like catacombs, yeah. skulls and bones and shit. That'd be well, some shit to wander around all fucked up on acid. Well, yeah, I, I would hope not, but I think in the in the sixties so. and seventies there might have been a couple of Yale students that fell if into the tunnels France, on acid. I will eat some acid out of those catacombs. Okay, I will, I will break you? my acid. Uh, Contact at the catacombs? Are we going to plan yeah. this in New Haven? <laughs> Mushrooms might be better. We just said that, Darren. I just said contact at the catacombs yesterday to Darren. Oh. That was hilarious. But that oh. wasn't, oh, that was contact at the chamber, wasn't it? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that was different. Oh. Well, I don't know. Contact at the catacombs. Was that a Grand America cool. show episode? So did I just finish the joke? That might have been an outlawed. Did, Some did you knock on the it. tomb or something of this place? So that was sort of the, this is the other side of the synchronicity is, as I mentioned, I was a a college dropout, but I I liked college. I liked the partying side of college. I liked the acid tripping part of college. And um, when I was a Chinese delivery guy, a buddy of mine from high school who used to be Chinese. Well, I used to deliver Chinese food, but no, I wasn't Chinese. No, (laughs) maybe in a past life, but not this lifetime. Um, But I was delivering Chinese food and a buddy walked into this restaurant I worked at and he had been like the only conspiracy oriented person I had ever met at that young age, at least in my community. You know, like he showed me loose change and all these other things online. But he's like, hey, you got to come and join this fraternity. You don't have to be in college, you know, just come and hang out. It's fun. So I said, what the hell? I'm not doing anything better. I go down there. I get, you know, pseudo initiated into this fraternity. And it was a fun time. You know, the the rituals and whatnot, I wouldn't say were hazing. It was actually like a, a supportive and encouraging environment. Uh, but it was like, you know, this sort of animal house style movie you know kind of fraternity that was disconnected from not yale university but a a state university nearby and on the last night of you know whatever my series of rituals were to become initiated into this fraternity they had us as like a you know a real test of our character uh, because it was a new haven college we went downtown and They had us kind of take our own lonely walk down this street and knock on the skull and bones door and then, you know, kind of run back, you know, and, and and it was really like, it felt like an inner fraternity prank. Like our fraternity was this small, you know, not, not, not in any way close to the significance of skull and bones, but because we shared the same town it was like this, like we, we thought we had a rivalry. So, so the initiation process, we had to like test our courage and knock on this door. And 
I remember just thinking like, how weird is this? Cause I didn't tell my friends in that group of friends about Amos or Geronimo, you know, they weren't really open other than that one guy, Mikey to this type of thought, you know, uh, they did psychedelics as like a, a party thing, not as like a consciousness expanding thing. Like I was doing at that age. And, uh, yeah, just the irony of like, yeah, now we're going to make you go and knock on the skull and bones door, you know, and you got to like march down the street at midnight and kind of your nerves get to you, but it really, it wasn't, it wasn't anything. I'm sure nobody was in the building at the time. It was a Saturday. Um, but at the end of the day, I just look back. What's that? Didn't leave any poop. (laughs) I'm sure some people, when I was a kid, we used to have the paper bag of dog poop in it and you'd light it on fire and leave it on their step, bang on the door and run away. I might get in trouble admitting this, but uh, oh, but there was there, there there was, was poop. A, that's it. You're on the hit list. Mark <laughs> Steves, George no. Bush Jr. just added your name to his list. He stomped out no. that shit 30 years ago. You know, although there was a lot of gross things going on at that fraternity, that wasn't what I'm referring to. But uh, they did, prior to me being a part of it, steal the Skull and Bones Jolly Roger flag from the actual fraternity house because they don't sleep in the tomb. They just go there for their meetings. They have their own, you know, proper house where they stay when they're seniors and they have a, a Jolly Roger flag on their front porch. And my fraternity, like I said, prior to my engagement with it, uh, stole their flag from their porch and uh, had it on display in their, you know, their own house. So it was sort of like, Again, this added layer of synchronicity, like pulling me into this world uh, from all these different angles. And now that I'm here hosting my own podcast, I've made a bunch of friends in this world. Uh, Michael Wan is someone who's inspired me, but a buddy who has a podcast called How to Kill a Sacred Cow. He joined me for a walking tour that I did uh, of New Haven. I kind of got excited about this and it was 322-2022. I said, let's do a walking tour, get some of the listeners of the show to come down and hang out and I'll give them a tour of Yale University's campus. And uh, one thing led to another. It went great. And my buddy Jay said, you know, we got to turn this into into something. So we're kind of working on a project now. Uh, maybe it'll turn into a podcast. Maybe it'll turn into a documentary. Uh, but I just, you know, with everything in mind, uh, the research that I just spewed on you guys, I, I just want to say thank you for, for letting me kind of get it out. Cause it isn't a fully formed thesis that maybe your listeners would expect from most of your guests, but you know, it's very connected to who I am and uh, what I've been doing for the past 10 years, despite the fact that my family thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> no worries, dude. I what was did good. you guys get up to back in the fucking seventies, Graham? What kind of shit did you do? In the seventies? Yeah. You mean eighties? Were you in a fraternity? <laughs> No, I didn't. I fucking never went to college. It's not like that in Canada, really. No, I went like, to. I used to party no in, in the bags. university. We used to party in the dorms without being in the university. We'd just crash the dorm parties. What about, oh yeah, I crashed some dorms like a motherfucker. Yeah. That was that was fun. What I mean, did you do for pranks though? For pranks, we didn't do pranks like that. Oh, you guys are dorks, weren't you? No, you're just smoking ditch weed, being nerds. <laughs> 
Well, around here they have a, a practice called crooking, and uh, the Skull and Bones sort of innovated it with their grave robbery. And I think eventually that went out of style, and now you know the skulls that they have are sort of historical. I don't think that they spend much time robbing graves nowadays, but they have been known more recently, Skull and Bones, to, to steal people's license plates and steal all sorts of interesting things from New Haven. So in that vein, uh, the fraternity I was a part of, which again, wasn't even affiliated with a proper university. They were a ragtag bunch. Uh, they kind of took up the uh, practice of crooking and, <laughs> you know, not, not really stealing, but stealing for, for stealing. the sake of a it's prank. Stealing. Yeah. It's still stealing. Yeah. It's still, still so, stealing. My license fun, plate's though. still gone. Motherfucker. <laughs> now I'm getting pulled well, get over in the state of smoking a joint. <laughs> oh, what'd you pull me over for? Yeah. You're missing your license what? plate. Pothead. What I, what I find, uh, what, what I find strange about this whole thing is like, I went to Wikipedia to check that, it's so open now, some of it, right? The Skull and Bones members is just out in the open, like every decade. Well, actually, I mean, it doesn't have 15 per year, but every decade they have who is in there. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of Olympic medalists in here. One decade, son of Prescott Bush. I won't say names as much, but speech writers for three presidents, um, uh, CIA, former CIA, United Nations development programs. And that's just from the fifties, you know, and then you get in the sixties, it's like executive advertisers, uh, university administrators, senators. I mean, it is, it is just elite. Like it's who's who of the elite, you know, and it's all out in the open now. So, I mean, I feel like this, the secret societies in the, so do you think that's because it's skull and bone? So, or because it's Yale, what, what, do you, what is what do you mean? Wasn't, wasn't skull, skull and Bones like a part of Yale? Yeah. It's a Yale thing? So, like, wouldn't it be like, if you went through, like, the Harvard thing, would it be sort of the same just because those schools are sort of grooming our leaders already? Absolutely. Oh, and yeah, I, yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, and, it, what, and I, it, what I'm saying is it's not really, like, a secret anymore. Like, and I, th I feel like all these societies came, I mean, I'm sure they have their secret underground factions, but I feel like the the... The uh, vehicle of foundations and charities became a way for them to come out in the open. I mean, they just really now all these people now, sure, they went through skull and bones as a almost like a sort of a, uh, a rubber, almost like a rubber stamp type thing. And then who knows where, you know, the Blackstone group, all oh, this guy, I just yeah. saw the, the Blackstone group. Yeah. National Institute of Mental Health. I mean, you know, there was a movie uh, like 20 years ago, too, right? What's that? Wasn't yeah, it? so the skulls. The skulls is is you know obviously uh, exaggerated, but there's some truth to what they portray in in that movie. And Paul Walker, you know, yeah, Paul Walker, you know, curiously died, and that was I think one of the last Pro movies he was ever a part was of. Telling me all about it. it was Paul Walker. Yeah. yeah. What's that, Darren? Who what? Pro Triple Seven. Pro Triple Seven was that his name? Yeah, Triple telling you about Paul Walker and how he he died because he was a part of the Skulls movie. No, I think it had something to do with Fast and Furious. Oh, okay. Well, you know, there's no doubt that they've had influence on really all aspects of specifically American culture, but you know, Germany, England, America, China, like Yale's sort of a British type of outfit. Uh, you got to keep that in mind, but. 
at the heart of Skull and Bones is this very deep German influence. So a lot of people talk about, you know, the financers of the Nazis being this brown Harriman company that was fresh out of Skull and Bones. Uh, you know, the financiers of communist China and undoubtedly probably uh, had some connections, maybe not financing, but manipulating that as well, uh, given the opium connections. And yeah, I mean, it, the list goes on and on, Graham. You could spend a long time like sorting through prominent people and often, we'll more often than that. not, they're, they're powerful people that you wouldn't recognize because this tends to be the type of people who have influence over what we would think of as the influencers. Guys like Henry Luce, who, you know, Time Magazine, People of the Year, you know, the person of the year was a big deal up until maybe five years ago. You know, this is culture shaping, you know. <laughs> person of What's the Year that? twice. I said, just ask Hitler. Yeah, person, person of the, of the year, year twice, twice. and what? And you know, world. that's no surprise. You know, <laughs> given that they were both funded by the same, you know, group, Hitler and Time Magazine. You know, so and America. I think, but that's right. another show. I mean, I love the synchromistic aspect of all this, and like what I was thinking of when you first started talking, which I would like to mention is, I feel like there's something without with all because, you know, twenty. 15 years ago, even or 20 years ago, there was all there was, was, you know, people on the radio that you could never get a hold of people on the TV that you could never get a hold of, you know, there's sure there was the odd cool show. Like, uh, you know, I mean, I watched sightings in the, in the, in the early nineties. And of course, like all those sort of, there's some mystery shows in the twilight zone. And yeah, there's some cool stuff like that, but I wrote a letter to Kirk McLean and he wrote did, back. Did you? There you go. Well, that's great. But he's a professional athlete, so that's oh, different. So that's different. They're ni- they're a nicer bunch. Yeah, they're more. I never they tried to ever writing a letter to anyone else. They're probably more used to fan mail than guys like you know authors and such. I get we you get more hate mail than fan mail. Usually, when someone likes you, they, they're less likely to take the time to write you. Yeah, they they're. they're, they're <laughs> Always likely to give you their criticism, though. There's I've a lot of that. I love I love your show, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've gotten but, that. But then I mean, but then but then this opened up the pot. The really is it was the podcasting. I think before video was around a lot was the podcasting is just to, all of a sudden people are listening to authentic authentic people, researchers, all this stuff. I feel, and I can't. I should have articulated the beginning of the show when it was in, when it was sort of fresh in my mind. But I feel like it's just sort of opened this flow of organic information amongst all these people that are interested in learning, and it just creates. It creates. I feel like it creates this. You might have to help me with the description, but it creates this sort of what Mother Earth. <laughs> Like an open dialogue or an open discourse, or, like, you know, this. like a layer over Mother Earth, like almost like a, you know, like a, a condom, you know, something that everybody can tap into, almost like oh. a new sort of uh, cushion or something over the like earth that people can tap link? into. What? Like a Neuralink? <laughs> a Neuralink. <laughs> yeah, like a Neuralink. That might cause some problems. Uh, like a spiritual, like a spiritual Neuralink in a way, right? I mean, because I mean, I remember inventing words as a kid, and I bet you still invent us, words. Us. <laughs> Just listen to one of the audio books. <laughs> Things go awry sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I've learned some gramisms over the years. But I sure. meant me and I meant me and my friends. 
We invented words up. We invented them out of, and then we fa- we heard them on the TV. Example. And we're like, how did they know those words? They don't know those words. We made up those words. You're some so of it's those either, kids. What? You were some what? of those kids. You're like the first ones to use those words, I bet. Oh, we made that up. Yeah, we were the we first were. ones to say, yeah. Uh, cool. We did, though. We and the then, we, you know, to... you hear them and then you wonder, how did they get them? Or was it a coincidence or was it just. The, you wonder how they we... got around for sure. Back in the day, how that weird slang, like, dipped around from town to town. Because you'd go over to the next town, like, six towns over. Yeah. And they'd just be saying the same shit. And you're like, what the but they weren't getting it from Saved by the Bell or the Simpsons. You know what I mean? It was just that's, like weird words. That's what I'm saying. That's exactly it. So now we have hundredth monkey. Now we have times that by a million with all the podcasts and you're, you know, you're creating this voice now that goes out to every, not just, you know, within your local communities and all that, but everyone. Well, and, and what, you know, the point you're making that really hits how it hits with me, Graham is like, there's a certain energy that, we're all tapping into. And a lot of the response that I get from people listening to my show and the show that I do with Michael Juan every week is like, wow, you guys really inspired me to look at the river that's in my hometown. Or you really inspired me to take another look at this weird monument that's in the center of my town. And as I was listening to your show, as I was listening to tinfoil hat delivering this bread, the energy of the land that I was born in just through whatever happenstance that brought my parents together was pulling these interesting mysteries out of my surroundings where, you know, I'm thinking, Oh, it's all on the computer. It's all in these books. It's not here. And the more I look at this stuff, the more I find connections to, you know, not just my own life. Cause who the hell am I? You know, I'm just another guy. Uh, you know, I don't pretend like I'm, you know, some kind of prophet when it comes to this stuff, but I think that just goes to show what's really going on and how anybody can tap into this sort of mystery and really the energy that goes with being curious about things, you know, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's a and higher I, form of curiosity. But, and that could be what the downfall is. I mean, that could be what this control system structure that's really right in, like what you said, we're right in the middle of the Hegelian dialectic right now. Their downfall could be that there's the spiritual energy that they don't foresee to go against them. You know, the spirit, the synchronistic, the synchromistic power of curiosity. So agreed. What would do you think? Do you see like uh, a shift in the podcasting uh, arena or the the video arena or like this arena where I feel like now you know every, of course everybody's got a podcast um, and researchers now who wouldn't do a podcast now do their own shows often. So I feel like there is really like and I and I actually I just heard a was it you guys playing a clip? I I listened to your show with those guys, uh, Ark and uh, Neo, I think it was. Yeah. Fantastic show about the pineal, like, holy shit, scary shit, dude, about the pineal gland and people eating pineal glands and feeding them their babies and, and all kinds you of know, crazy shit, growing giants out of babies with fucking crystallized pineal glands. Like, it was dude, I mean, I'm yeah. sort of making fun of it. It wasn't that... It no, was no, no. definitely well articulated, but <laughs> thank you. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that connects, you know, one of the things that Amos told me about this land uh, that New Haven and Yale was built on was, you know, some really gruesome things happen with the slave trade, with the native Americans being colonized, you know, they were brutalized in that place. That's now a green, you know, and right on the other side of the green is this tall tower with almost like a pyramid at the top 
and you know this is speculation this is allegedly but according to amos you know every march 22nd at sunrise whatever group is at the helm of skull and bones the head honchos maybe they're in their 50s or 60s you know we're talking a postgraduate society we're not talking about the young guns who just got in fresh into the group talking about the you know the granddaddies they go up to the top of this tower in new haven and they slice up a human heart where they get that probably the university somehow they slice up a human heart as it's you know still has blood in it and they all take a bite they all eat their piece at sunrise so there's certainly a cannibalistic sort of lore that doesn't just go with skull and bones but a lot of these occult ritual groups that you know have been associated in the past with these really morose practices like grave robbing why would they be robbing graves it's not just for cadavers you know there's a science there's an esoteric science behind what these vital organs do for your health but also what the glands can do for your health and as you mentioned ark and neo from the digging from the truth podcast joined me and they found a bunch of really weird newspaper articles talking about the trafficking of pineal glands and using them to grow, you know, uh, giant people and, and thinking that if they inserted the, the gland, the pineal gland of a monkey in the back of a girl's neck, it would save her from her feeble mindedness. I don't know if you, you caught that part, but that was astounding that like real Frankenstein type operations were taking place in the turn of the 19th century. And given Yale's reputation, John Hopkins, University. University, nonetheless, you know, all these places are big medical establishments. They're doing eugenics experiments. They're doing weird uh, alchemical, uh, what's the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde even, uh, or no, 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 the island of Dr. Moreau. That's who I'm thinking of. This is what's going on behind the, uh, the sterile white walls of the Yale University hospitals in my uh, sort of, uh, you know, very exaggerated sort of look in this through a synchromistic lens, maybe a dark one, but I like to think it's sort of, uh, you know, again, inspired by a lot of these people that I've mentioned already, Michael Hoffman, which I definitely recommend you listen to that interview, uh, that I did probably my best podcast ever. Um, and it, you know, I don't mean to like wax poetic about myself, but I'm just excited about understanding this stuff and, and how it connects and what the implications are of raising the awareness of this group in the minds of the average person and, you know, how that could maybe lead to this domino, you know, house of cards effect where you pull these cards, you start showing them. And next thing you know, it's all toppling down. Uh, You know, that's how Chris Milligan ends his book with this sort of really powerful quote about how the bones men are, are doomed, you know, essentially. So the chronicling America is that you mentioned it earlier, but people, I think I, I just heard you guys mention it on your show and then you mentioned it now, but that's where you can get access to all these old, old uh, newspapers, right? They were all scanned in and you can do word searches in there and stuff. I've never played around with it myself, but that seems like it'd be a very interesting um, yeah. uh, platform for researching stuff. So what's next for podcasting then? And, and, uh, and your thing, you've gotten together this group, Alt Media United, and do you want to just briefly summarize that kind of stuff before we wrap it up? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, thank you guys so much for, for being a part of Alt Media United early on and, and joining forces. 
the reason I started Alt Media United, many reasons, but specifically, there aren't any genres for this type of content on iTunes. There aren't algorithms that support this type of content on YouTube. So if I could create a website with the help of Alex Karras, who you guys know pretty well, um, you know, it's a way for people to discover awesome shows like this. And and at a time when, you know, people are waking up more than ever, at least we like to hope. But yeah, Alt Media United, if you have a podcast, please reach out to me. We'd love to have you a part of it. It's a cooperative. There's no obligations to you to be a part of it. And uh, if you're a listener and you want to find some cool content, check it out. You know, um, myself, a la Sam Tripoli, my boss, I do several different podcasts. Uh, but yeah, I'm just podcasting and alt media night is sort of evolving into uh new spaces and and growing and really as alt media united grows i hope we can help shows like yours and everyone else who's a part of it you know rise with us because a rising tide raises all ships and you know one of the biggest things that we've really started in on with alt media united is the tech side of things and you guys are way ahead of the game as far as the average podcast goes self-hosted and you know you run your own website and even run your own membership site so i think you guys are if anything uh, a model for other podcasters within alt media united so kudos to you guys for doing what you do and it's been an honor to to be here and you know as far as what i'm up to yeah like i said i do a bunch of do a bunch of podcasts and most of them can be found on my RSS feed. And one of them is found on Michael Wan's RSS feed, which uh, is called Susquehanna Alchemy. My podcast is easy to remember. That one might not be as easy, but uh, Susquehanna Alchemy is where you can find me talking about more of this kind of stuff. Synchromysticism. It's just me and Mike every episode. And we just bounce these ideas back and forth. Um, and then my podcast is similar to yours in ways. Obviously I've taken a lot of inspiration from your show. Uh, and I have guests on and uh, talk about a lot of the same subjects you do. So if anybody's into getting a new podcast in their week, weekly, you know, <laughs> playlist, check out My Family Thinks I'm Crazy and you'll find the rest from there. Right on. That's great, buddy. Thanks for coming on. This was a great chat. I loved learning about Yale and the Skull of Bones and your synchromistic journey. Darren, do you got anything before we wrap it up? No, thanks for coming on, Mark. Enjoy, uh, enjoy the East Coast over there. And try not to yeah. get snatched up. In oh, I'll be manholes. fine. I'll be fine, and I'll be catching up with you guys. Whether it's contact at the catacomb, contact at the cavern, contact wherever you guys go next. I'm well, gonna try go to, to make contact my way at to the chamber. That's a different <laughs> cathedral. Cathedral would be nice. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, like I said, I'd love to make it out to to one of those one day. So I look forward to that. And again, thank you guys, Darren Graham. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Right on, Cheers. Mark. Have a wonderful weekend. You too. And that was a chat with Mark Steves. From my, my my family thinks I'm crazy. Does your family think you're crazy? No, my family loves me to death. <clears throat> Not to death. I shouldn't really? say that. But really, um, no, I because my whole family's crazy. So I mean, it's perfect. True. My no, family's pretty crazy no. too. No, well, my immediate yeah, this family was a good chat, is, though. I mean, my Mark's immediate family just, is crazy. My extended family. Yeah. <laughs> Less crazy. What I was going to say I love about Mark's story is just how he put put himself out there and and sort of made it happen without uh, worrying about, you know, if this is a good career choice or this and that. You just start doing stuff for free or whatever. Most of the stuff that's really turned out for me, when I look back, I volunteered for 
for the first while without any expectations. And they turn into excellent gigs. Giggers. So I love that part of his journey. Yeah. Right on. Big thanks to Mark for coming on the show. Big thanks to you guys for listening. Even bigger thanks if you choose to support our little podcast over here, grammarica.ca slash support. Sign up for a monthly today. Make a one-time donation. All that stuff is great. You can head to adultbrain.ca. Check out all the audiobook action we've been up to. And uh, join the chats, grammarica.ca slash chats. And uh, check out, if you haven't, check out other podcasts, grammaricaoutlaw.ca. We mentioned that a few times here. If A few names came up. You know, like they said, they had to get this guy on, but I can't find him. It's probably in the Grammarica Outlaw feed. Just type Grammarica Outlaw into your podcast player or go to grammaricaoutlaw.ca. And away you go. Uh, happy Easter. We love you guys. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. I'm walking gingerly through the rat race. Take a look at the big old smile on my face. Kicking around down by the pool of narcissists. The people are many. They preen themselves. Oh, how they navel gaze. Somewhere over that hill, the gloomy skies cease to exist. I'm climbing that hill, I pass by and pity the poor Sisyphus. I go into hyperdrive, turn into a beam of light. I'm strolling down a static electric avenue. The people are predictable, they say, good morning, how do you do? When out of nowhere, a randomly pure angel in the crosswalk bumps into me. And in doing so, knocks all the evil and all the wind out of me. And it's black as tar, ugly as ever, and of no apology. This angelic mama sings heavenly of the truest theology. Together we're a seraphim dream, forever young with no chronology. A thousand years from now, we'll be written into ancient mythology. We go into hyperdrive, turn into a beam of light. Can you tell me about the view up there? It's sparkling remarkably, the air is crystal clear. Well, please won't you tell me what it takes to transcend this place? A little bit of heart and a whole lot of soul Take a look at the big old smile on my face As my angel says dance with me and your life will never ever ever be told I go into hyperdrive, turn into a beam of light 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 Turn into a beam of light